The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Mark 9 at verse 30, picking up at the end of where uh, Dr. York preached last week. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise." But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And then skipping over to chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. How does the cross of Christ change the way we see our lives? 
One part of that answer is, of course, that the cross of Christ is at the foundation and center of our salvation. It gives us everlasting life and joy and hope in Christ and his resurrection. Our salvation is centered on the cross, and we glory in this cross. We stand forgiven in the cross. So many of our hymns speak of that theme. There is now no condemnation because every believer is justified now and forevermore in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we have growing assurance and great assurance because of the cross. But another part of that answer is that God calls his people to walk as Jesus walked in the way of the cross. And that is our subject this evening, this calling to walk a cross-centered life, which fundamentally changes the way we look at our lives. It profoundly turns around and turns, we could say, almost inside out how we see our lives. It changes the focus of our lives. It changes even our fundamental priorities and goals as we live with a different, now a Christ-centered, cross-centered mindset. Here in chapter 9 of Mark, We have read the second time in Mark's gospel that Jesus predicts his suffering and death. And he will do so once more in chapter 10. The first time was near the end of chapter 8. We saw a few weeks ago that the first time he does it, Peter, in his typical impulsive way, rebukes Jesus. He takes him aside and says, Lord, no, this can't be right. And Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. And it's interesting that this time, following this prediction of his death, there is a similar uh, clear evidence that the disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying. And then in chapter 10, there's another one where right after that, James and John um, come privately to Jesus and ask him that they be on his right hand and his left hand. It's just dramatic the way Jesus teaches clearly about his cross with clear implications for his disciples, all his disciples, what the cross will mean to them, but they don't understand it. And so this portion of Mark is a very important part about Jesus pointing to the cross as he moves toward Jerusalem and experiencing the cross. And our text that I read, especially um, verses 33 and following to the end of chapter 9, is an extended, extended section in which Jesus is bringing home to us this teaching of the cross and how it applies to us. Because uh, like the disciples, we need to understand the implications of the cross. You have to wonder if part of the reason that we read in verse 32 that the disciples did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him, part of the reason is that they guessed that it might have implications for them. And eventually, they would certainly see these implications and experience them in a martyr's death for most of them. Here we see Christ's commitment to the way of the cross and the implications for his disciples. What does the text teach us about how the cross changes the way we see ourselves and our lives? Our first point that we see from verses 33 to 35 is that the cross teaches us Christ-centered servanthood and humility. 
The cross teaches us Christ-centered servanthood and humility. And we could say this is the overarching theme of all the points that we'll make, really. This is the main theme that Jesus focuses on immediately. He takes them aside in Capernaum, and he sits them down and says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, as Christians, this is pretty familiar territory for us. Probably all of you know this verse, and maybe you've sung songs about it. There are children's songs that are along these themes, but much more difficult to apply than to understand. The focus is humble serving rather than being exalted. And we could turn to Philippians 2 where there's that great text about have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul launches into that wonderful hymn to Christ who though though he he was equal with God did not count that something to be grasped and he humbled himself to the point of the cross. These disciples, think of them. They had given up pretty much to follow Christ. They had left families. They had left some of them, their fishing business or their tax collecting, and they were following this rabbi. And now he begins to tell them that he's going to die. That would be somewhat disconcerting, wouldn't it? it? You might think, wait a second, I thought that the kingdom was going to come and I'd have a part of that. You're certainly going to be preeminent, but I'm sure it was disconcerting for them to hear that. And then to hear this teaching about If any would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Again, our cultural setting is a little bit different than theirs. There's a lot of egalitarianism in the United States, and we've had that for 250 years now. But the cultural background for the disciples was very much part of an honor society. And uh, the giving of appropriate honor was very much a part of the disciples in that culture's everyday life at meals. We hear some of the the parables and the stories of sitting down at a special meal and maybe not sitting at the highest place of honor because you might be asked to move for somebody else to displace you. That'd be like putting someone at the side of the host on Thanksgiving Day and then somebody else walks in and say, hey, you're not as important as this one. I'm bumping you down one. You know, that's we don't do that that much, although we certainly have honor. Uh, this role of honor in worship or in all dealings of everyday society in that day or the administration of justice, estimating the honor due to each person was a task which had to be constantly fulfilled and was felt to be very important. So that's the cultural context for all this. These questions of precedence and rank were constantly there. It was part of the society. But Jesus comes along here, and he teaches, and he speaks about himself. And in doing so, he is bringing about a great reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank. In fact, the teaching of Jesus Christ and Christianity has so permeated the West over hundreds of years that we just assume that's the way it's always been. His teaching was revolutionary. It was radical. And the disciples really had no conception of how to reconcile this teaching with where they and how they looked at themselves and life. They couldn't even reconcile this idea of a messianic son of man that Daniel prophesied about with a suffering servant. 
They didn't see the two as the same. They didn't see them as both fulfilled in Christ. And so what a contrast. Jesus predicting his shameful rejection and suffering. And then immediately the disciples are scrabbling about status and position and who's the greatest. It's jarring, isn't it? But Scripture, God is telling us something important. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought to, don't don't we? Who would have thought that these relatively poor disciples from a subsistence culture, really, would be so overcome by the desire for position and supremacy? But they were just like we are. Pride besets us all. It's a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in our hearts, often without being detected. It can even wear the garb of humility. That's even more insidious, isn't it? The world's idea of greatness is to rule, but Christian greatness consists in serving. J.C. Ryle wrote this phrase over 150 years ago. It shows you that there's nothing new. To mortify that self-pleasing and self-indulgence to which we are so prone. That's the way of the cross. Abraham Lincoln is one of the favorite presidents of most Americans. I was reading an article in World about they had interviewed 16 evangelical pro-life women across the spectrum, across the United States, about President Trump. And there was a great variety of views about him and everything. But all, if or almost all of them, their favorite president was Lincoln. It's interesting. I won't tell you. You can read the article, what they all said about President Trump. But um, a large part of Abraham Lincoln's political genius was his mindset of, of humble service and, and self-effacing humility. And one of his greatest strengths was the ability to humble his own pride and his will for the greater good. To, to not be so concerned about his own ego or his own reputation or how someone might have hurt him or stabbed him in the back. And so he was able to really, in a remarkable way, save many relationships within his administration, with generals in the army, all of these kind of things that otherwise might have been deeply divisive or deeply harmed or destroyed the wider work of his administration during this very important time. In fact, I was just thinking about the um, interesting story of the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. That battle was so critical, and Lincoln spent all three days, just about day and night, in the telegraph office in the War Department, waiting for dispatches from Gettysburg. And and on pins and needles about what would happen as each day transpired. And certainly much joy in that room when the good news came late in the night on July 3rd that uh, the Confederates had been defeated and they were turning back and retreating. And Abraham Lincoln orders Meade to pursue General Lee and his army, and this is the opportunity to destroy the army of Virginia and end the war. And anyone familiar with that part of military history knows that General Meade did not do that. For whatever the reasons, he didn't do it. And 
After a period of days went by and it became evident by the middle of July that Meade wasn't doing what Lincoln had commanded, Lincoln sat down and penned this heart-wrenching letter to General Meade telling how deeply disappointed he was. That, yes, he was happy with the victory, but, oh, uh, he wrote about how sorry he was that General Meade hadn't done what he had commanded, and he didn't sign it. And he put it in an envelope and sealed it and put it in his desk and never sent it, probably because he knew that it wasn't going to help General Meade at this point to add his disappointment with him. And probably he knew that ultimately it wouldn't be helpful to Meade and the cause of the Union. And I would ask us, as we think about this lesson in servanthood and humility that Jesus gives, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. How does that intersect with your life this week? How is the Lord Jesus Christ calling you to not be first but be last? How is he calling you to serve others? Think about your relationships. Think about the ways you might serve, small ways that might not be seen. We're going to see more about that when we look at that idea of a cup of cold water offered. Maybe your attitude toward others. Are you walking the way of the cross in terms of servanthood? Well, further application of that is our next point, number two. The cross teaches us to love those who have little importance or position in the world. Jesus, in verse 36, goes into an application of this, we might say. He says, and he, t- he takes this child and he sets them in the midst of them, and he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This lesson from the child is based on the cultural idea, again, somewhat different from our cultural perspective where children are the center of things many times, and in a sense we have a more children-centered culture and society. But in that day, children were viewed very differently. They had no status. They had no honor in that sense. And Jesus is saying, your attitude to those who have no standing in society reflects your attitude to me, reflects your attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about this is as if this were the way to be saved, but he's saying it will be evidence of your submission to Jesus Christ. Only when you have received the Lord Jesus Christ in his capacity as the servant of the Lord in his humility in the cross, as you have received him in his lowly suffering for our sins, that is the way to be truly submitted to God. And that true faith and submission will give evidence of itself by this kind of Christ-like attitude of servanthood. What encouragement the Lord gives us to show kindness to the least and lowest. The world sees the way to greatness through crowns and rank and wealth and high position. The Son of God declares that the way of the cross lies in devoting ourselves to the care of the weakest and the lowliest. Isn't that a searching principle 
and it has various applications of the priorities that we set for our lives, the ways that we look at the people around us. I'm always amazed by people who reach out to children who are in great need, whether it's adoption or foster care or we have this uh, program of safe homes that some of our members get involved with. What a way to reach out to the lowly. Or we could make the application to the refugees in our community, those who are really lowly in the world and have no power in our society. I love the illustration of the fairy godmother in Cinderella. Maybe some of you recently or in the past few years saw the movie about Cinderella that came out. Not the animated one, but actually a, a live-action one. And it's, it's got this great part in the movie where Cinderella has, has heard about the ball that the prince is going to have, and she gets out her, her deceased mother's dress that was so important to her, and she gets out this dress, and, and she f- tries to fix it up, and of course, the mice and the birds are helping her fix it all up, and she comes down the stairs when her stepmother and her stepsisters are about to leave for the ball, and she says, look, I do have a dress, and there's this scene where they just rip parts of it away and pull the sleeve off and tear it up, and she's standing there in rags again, and she's just weeping, and she and the stepmother and stepsisters leave to go to the ball, and Cinderella runs out into the yard. It's pouring rain, and she's just soaking wet and uh, kneeling there by the wall crying. And this humble, ugly-looking old woman who's poor and dirty walks up in rags and says, do you have something that I can eat or drink? Cinderella, you know, doesn't want to do anything, but she says, okay, you know, she gets up. She goes inside. She brings out some food. And those of you who've seen that, I'll just give this part away. This is the fairy godmother who suddenly, you know, turns herself into a a wonderful uh, blessing. What is your attitude to the lowly? I thought, when I saw that, I thought, what a picture of Christ-like humility in serving the lowly. Even when left to herself, Cinderella could have just focused in on self-pity and poor me. And yet, she was drawn out in love and service to someone else. Well, thirdly, we find that the cross teaches us to be slow to judge those serving Christ who, those who are not, quote, one of us. Here's an interesting comment that Jesus hears from the disciple John in verse 38. John said to him, teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And then he gives this illustration of this. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's interesting that that promise is in the context of an unauthorized use of Jesus' name. Here we think of John, who's coming with this. John, we think of as the apostle of love, right? You know, who writes so wonderfully about that. But remember, he was one of the two sons of thunder, Jesus' nickname for James and John. (laughs) So this is some of John's thunder. 
and we see it elsewhere as well. And really, this, I don't believe, was about the superstitious use of Jesus' name that we find in the book of Acts once. This is about unauthorized use of Jesus' name. And most commentators say here that the fact that this man effectively used Jesus' name to cast out demons showed that he was what we would call a believer, and that was he, he was effectively serving Christ and bearing witness for Christ. And it's interesting that this comment comes, if you were here last week, comes in the context of the disciples' failure to cast a demon out right after the transfiguration. And what we find here is Jesus rebuking John and really the disciples as a whole for their narrow exclusivism. John had stopped the man and said, don't do this. And so in a sense, Jesus is saying, this is a misplaced zeal by making sure that there would be no unauthorized use of Jesus' name. In other words, Jesus' reply shows extraordinary restraint and patience. And his point is that uh, ministry in Jesus' name is not the prerogative of a few, um, but it's the privilege of all those who belong to the kingdom of God. And even this example of giving a cup of cold water to drink, Jesus is using that as an example. Someone might give someone a cup of cold water to drink, but if he's doing it because he belongs to Christ, then he will not lose his reward. This rebuke underlines this point of guarding our attitude about safeguarding our central role, we might think, in the kingdom of God. It really goes to the heart of an us and them mentality. Um, Almost that idea that someone has to be one of us to be devoted to Christ. And I know there's a right place for discernment and judgment about error and heresy and churches that may be Christian in name but aren't holding forth the gospel. Certainly, we need to exercise right discernment about those kind of things. But it does speak to our tendency to pride and our tendency to see ourselves as the best, and we might say the true or truest servants of Christ. We need to guard our hearts. We need to uh, act and to think with humility and charity to others who are serving Christ. It always surprises me when I read the history of one of my favorite characters in church history, George Whitfield, that great evangelist, that when he goes on his preaching tours of Scotland— And you'd think he'd be universally received by the church. It's the conservative Presbyterians who reject him and who do not cooperate with him because he's Anglican. I never like to read that part of the history. I always think, ah, why didn't the conservative Presbyterians get on board? Easy for me to see that from my perspective in history, but not easy for them to see it. We need to be careful The cross teaches us to be slow to judge others. We must be wise, but we must be charitable as well. And then fourthly, the cross teaches us a seriousness in our fight against sin. 
verses 42 through 48 teach us about the stumbling block of sin. And verse 42 is related to the verses above, uh, causing someone else, these little ones who believe in me, to sin. And that certainly applies to children and young folks, but has a wider application as well. I think it's in in the realm of application that he's been speaking about others that may be not completely allied with us and who we are. But we must be cautious and guard ourselves to causing others to sin. And through that link, he then launches in verses 43 to 48 about this important matter of waging war with remaining sin. We could spend a whole sermon on this, but there's this familiar passage about if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And we know that he's not literally speaking about taking a part of your body and cutting it off, but he's using this metaphor because it's so radical. It's very serious. It shows the nature of our remaining warfare with sin. And the cross is that instrument of death by which we more and more die to sinful self, whatever form it takes, and live unto God. Sanctification involves putting sin to death by the power of the cross. Yes, we're justified once and for all, but then in our warfare with remaining sin, and this applies to every Christian, we must aim at complete eradication. To paraphrase the great theologian, John Owen, kill sin or it will be killing you. In other words, when we fail to mortify remaining sin, when we nurse our darling sins, as the Puritans would use the term, then it tends to spiritual death. Never ultimately, for those who belong to Christ, we are kept by the power of God through faith. Jesus Christ keeps his own even when they stumble into sin. But the way to fight sin is not to negotiate with it. It's warfare against sin. And Jesus' reference to the hand, to uh, the eye, it shows us that sin is not merely a spiritual reality, so-called, which has no relationship to daily life. It's very much concretized, we would say here. Jesus is talking about sin in a very concrete way. Whatever you are going to grab with your hand, cut your hand off. Whatever you're going to look at that's causing you to sin, pluck out your eye. If it involves your feet, where you would go, cut off your foot. In other words, this metaphor is expressing our sin in everyday ways. And the gospel is a summons to present our bodies a living sacrifice, Romans 12. Listen to how Paul describes the same calling in Romans 6. Verse 19, for just as you once presented your members, there's that emphasis on members, your hand, your foot, as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, righteousness leading to sanctification. That's pretty much at the, the conclusion of this great chapter on sanctification. The battle for purity, the battle against sin is serious. And the mention of hell here, we don't like to talk about hell. Whenever we talk about hell, we should do it soberly and seriously and with sadness. Jesus mentions hell repeatedly here. And then in verse 48, he mentions what I believe is a description 
of the everlasting nature of hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Very sobering words from our Lord. But notice that this is a motivation for believers to war against sin. We talked about this in our Sunday school class on holiness the other month, about how how Scripture is like Jesus is like a doctor with this medicine bag that he has, this big black medicine bag, and he opens it up, and it's full of motivations for fighting against sin and being like Christ. And the main ones have to do with thankfulness for salvation and faith in Christ and love and devotion to God. Those are the big overarching ones, but the danger of showing ourselves to be apostate and and, and ending up in hell is a valid motivation. And if that's the only motivation that works sometime, okay, fine, use it. That's in the medicine bag. It's not the main one, but it's there. Jesus gives us many motivations to flee sin. And here he is using the danger of hell as one. Well, let me close with some encouragements as we look at the last few verses here. Encouragements when we consider the thorough nature of a cross-centered life. Let me just mention these briefly. One is, in verse 49, God is going to use the trials of this life to work in us the likeness of Christ. We've been talking about the way of the cross. Verse 49 says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Commentators think that Jesus mentions the fire of hell, and then he changes the analogy to God's purifying fire, so to speak, in this life, probably referring to the trials of this life. It's like Peter later says in 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 4.12, the fiery trials that test our faith and that purify our faith. God uses the trials of this life to purge away the dross. And so God is going to use trials in your life in ways that you would not imagine. You wouldn't really want it to be done that way, but thanks be to God, he's using trials. Everyone will be salted with fire. The Old Testament offerings, there's mention of it in Leviticus and Ezekiel, they were salted with salt. We are sacrifices given to God. We're salted with fire. And then secondly, the cross-centered calling of every Christian to be used by God as salt The analogy changes again in verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Every Christian is called to be used by God as salt. The cross-centered life makes us salty. Salt in those days wasn't pure. We might think, how can salt not be salty? Salt had a lot of impurities in it in those days. So if the saltiness was gone, you threw it out on the street. It had lost its saltiness. You and I are called to have an impact on the world in which we live as salt and light. That should encourage us as well. God's going to use us that way. And that really leads us into our third encouragement. One of the primary ways God will use the cross is in our relationships. The end of verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Interesting that Jesus talks about peace with one another. I go back to Lincoln to close. Lincoln, after he won the election in 
1860 and was heading to Washington when the nation was splitting in half, prepared to take the train from Springfield, Illinois, to go to Washington, D.C., and to assume the presidency. And he was standing on the platform, and there were bands there playing triumphant marches, and the crowds were cheering and waving as as Lincoln and his wife and his boys got on the train. And Lincoln turned on the platform to wave to the crowd, and he decided to give them an impromptu address. And he said a few words, and he had to stop because he was just so filled with emotion. And those nearby him said he was shaking with emotion. He said something about the fact that he had spent 25 years there, that he had started his career in Springfield, that he had set up his law practice there, that he had married his wife there, that they had had their boys there, that he had buried his three-year-old son there, and he was heading to Washington, but he would be back. And so he went to D.C., and during his presidency, he never was able to leave to come back because the Civil War raged. He was needed there every day. And he was back, as you probably know the story, in a coffin. That long train ride back where the nation grieved him. Really, I think, a good analogy. A life of incredible sacrifice for the nation, for his people. How much more so Jesus Christ and his cross sacrificed for his people. And what a strong and abiding calling you and I have to trust in him, to give Jesus Christ our lives, and to follow him in this humble way of the cross. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of the gospel that turns things upside down, that takes the status and the power and the rank and the influence and the wealth and the prestige of this world and shows it for what it is, to be nothing before God. O Lord, help us to cling to the true riches of Jesus Christ. Help us to be humble, not by being able to see even all the uh, intricacies of our pride, but help us to be humble by looking to our great King and Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.